Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Professor Gary Rogers, Dean at the School of Medicine at Deakin University. Professor Rogers is a health profession education leader, public health researcher, and GP or family physician with a focus on HIV medicine. He commenced as Professor and Dean at the School of Medicine at Deakin University as recently as June 2020. You're very, very welcome to the show, Gary Rogers. We're really delighted to be speaking with you today. And I wanted to start really with your journey that led you to the lofty heights of Dean. So I started medicine at the University of Adelaide in 1978. The only person from my high school to get into medicine, I went to a public high school in South Australia and had a fairly conventional time at medical school, I guess, although I, I must say I didn't find the medical students very interesting. The art students were much more interesting and all of my friends seemed to be from other faculties when I was at university. And then when I left medical school, I, I had the customary false start into surgery that so many people have. I really thought I'd did want to be a surgeon. I can't imagine why I thought that at the time, but I did. And uh, yeah, had a couple of years as a surgical resident and surgical registrar came to Melbourne for a couple of years. I was interested in plastic hand surgery, as it turns out, but it didn't turn out to be the, the right direction for me. And so I went back to Adelaide and, and went into general practice. And that would have been 1990. And within a few weeks of starting in general practice, I made an HIV diagnosis, and uh, then another, and then another. And uh, as a gay man myself, I guess my general practice was pretty much focused on gay men's health, and so not surprisingly at that time in, in human history, uh, that became a very part of the work I was doing. So it was HIV care in the time before we had good antiretroviral therapy, and uh, so that was a lot of palliative care, to be honest. And uh, I spent a lot of time in the hospice and my partner and I were going to about a funeral a month there for a while. And so that's when I started to realise that just one doctor couldn't actually provide what people with this awful disease needed, or indeed what people who were at risk of acquiring the infection needed either. And so although we didn't have the language at the time, what was needed was some A, some community development, and B, an interprofessional team. So I'd already become quite involved with the AIDS Council in South Australia and the, the um, People Living with HIV organisation. And we went together and put together a funding bid to what were, what were then divisions of general practice, the brand new divisions of general practice. And we set up a primary healthcare service for people with HIV and people at increased risk of HIV in Adelaide. And we were able to do that in a very, what we would now call an interprofessional way, or as I say, no one was talking about that at the time. And yes, I think we did some very good work during that period. And then in the middle 90s, when sequinavir came along, if you recall, it was the, the first drug that was actually designed based on the genetics of the organism it was targeting. And, uh, and within a few months, everything changed. We had, we had highly active antiretroviral therapy, and almost overnight, my patients stopped dying of HIV. And that was pretty extraordinary. But what happened then was that they started killing themselves instead. And that was a really, really challenging thing to be working through. I really didn't feel like I had the skills to manage that. And so I went back to school, basically. I, I did a graduate certificate and a master's in general practice psychiatry from Monash University. 
and started, I think, to be able to make some difference there. And, and then that's why I sort of called the study bug after 16 years in practice, and that ended up being my PhD, which is adopting a health equity framework, looking at, at what this phenomenon was, what was, what was going on. And, and what it was, of course, was that it was internalised homophobia. This was a group of people who had bought what they'd been sold about not being very important or worthwhile to society. And, and so when they were, in a sense, robbed of their death from HIV, they, they went about a different way. I learned a lot about the world during that period. It was, it was a difficult time, but I think a very, a very important one. And of course, all this was before we really thought of LGBTQI people as a disadvantaged group. Uh, there's a, a quote in my thesis somewhere from, I can't actually remember who the quote was from, but it was a time when, when homophobia was the last acceptable form of prejudice. And it is actually, I guess, really interesting to reflect from here. My thesis went in in 2005, and if you told me at the time that by a couple of years ago uh, we'd have marriage equality in Australia, I, I would have never thought we could possibly have come that far. So it's yes, it's been that, that's been a very interesting journey. Uh, after after that, after I finished my PhD in that um, rather strange mindset that one has, you know, that was five years of my life. What now? I saw an advertisement for a job based in New Mere in New Caledonia, working for an organisation called SPC, the Secretary of the Pacific Community, which is kind of like the EU in miniature. And uh, I, well, I thought, why not? I'd always been a Francophile, so living in a French-speaking country was kind of appealing. So I applied for that job and got it, and then my partner and I had to decide whether we were going to really move to New Caledonia, and, and we did. And we had two years there, uh, although... I wasn't in New Caledonia a lot of that time because I was out across the Pacific um, doing HIV care training and mentorship and also sort of leading a team of, um, of public health workers uh, in STI prevention and HIV prevention. And then at the end of that time, it was time to come back to Australia and, and the job at Griffith University was, was on offer. I had never imagined living on the Gold Coast. It was certainly not one of the, the places that I had expected ever to live, but, uh, but the job was interesting. And so we, we moved there and I uh, had 12 years at Griffith University as um, Deputy Head of School and then Deputy Head Learning and Teaching before coming to Victoria this year. So I, I finished up in February to go on long service leave this year you know, in an office, <laughs> finished off my job, went on long service leave, moved, moved my family down to Victoria and while I was doing that, the entire world changed and in the 13 weeks I've now been at Deakin, I've been to the campus twice and spent every day in my little study here in Addicburn Living a very different, uh, smaller life, but uh, I'm still not regretting the decision. I'm very pleased to have moved taken. Well, we're very, very, very pleased to have you in Victoria. All the more because you come from a place that resonates with so many of us. You come from a place where you started your career in the care of people who are extraordinarily vulnerable. You bring that with you in an important role as dean of a medical school. Because you bring that perspective that it is about the care of the vulnerable above all else. Yes. I think we can agree on that. Absolutely. So talk a little bit about that. How are you going to bring that more to the fore in, in this role that you now have? Yeah. To be honest, though, I, for a while, I wasn't sure I ever wanted to be the dean of the medical school. You know, I'd been on a learning and teaching trajectory and that I thought perhaps I'd, I'd end up as a dean learning and teaching for a health faculty or something like that. But the opportunity at Deakin was one that I thought was too good not to investigate because I think Deakin's reputation is that it actually lives its values. 
I think all the universities say that they are value-driven, but all the evidence I've seen about Deakin was that it actually was, and certainly all that I've seen since I arrived says that it actually is. And, you know, I think it, it is a place that embraces what you were just saying about the real, the real purpose of, of medicine. I, I am someone who has to have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. I have to feel like I'm making a difference in the world. And I think this is an opportunity where I can do that. I think Australian medical schools have tried very hard to widen the participation in medicine, but I think, uh, I guess the first step to that was, was a move to postgraduate programs in order to try to recruit people from a wider range of uh, backgrounds and to overcome the, the impacts of educational privilege in, in getting people into medicine. But it's been interesting, I think, that the structures of privilege have proven very resilient, if I can put it that way, and that uh, the privileged have found ways around almost every strategy that we've come up with to try to widen participation. And whether that be coaching or um, whatever, whatever it may be, so we have drifted back again towards really selecting medical students based more than anything on parental income. And I think that is, that is uh, de facto uh, the way that the medical students are selected in Australia, largely. So I, I'm very determined to try to fight back, I guess, in that fight. And Deakin's focus on, on rural and remote Australia, or rural and remote Victoria in particular, I think aligns with that. You know, I, uh, the, the kinds of freakishly high scores that people need to achieve in the open competition into medicine that makes it very difficult for people who are not rural, of rural origin, of um, urban origin, and financially advantaged. It makes it very, very difficult for them to compete in that marketplace. So, one of the things that was already underway at Deakin, and I'm delighted to be continuing with, is a is a rural training pathway, a rural training stream, so that students from rural areas who are bright enough to be good doctors and have the other personal characteristics that we need to make good doctors, uh, don't have to compete in that same pool as people who, with um, that extraordinary uh, urban advantage and, and financial advantage. So that's, that's our first step. But uh, we, we have some other ideas. We're, we're really looking to try to reach out to our rural communities and find senior high school students who have the capabilities and the orientations that will make them good doctors and good rural doctors. And we're looking at some ways to try to... The hardest part, of course, is to to identify those characteristics in people who are 16 or 17. As you were alluding to before, when I was selected for medicine in Adelaide in, uh, in 1978, it was purely on my high school school. And luckily, it was enough to get me in coming, coming from a, um, a working-class background. But um, that's, that's tough and that's difficult. And, and we, we want to be able to bring people into the profession who reflect the full range of our society and, and not just the sons and daughters of existing medical practitioners from Turek. Just reflecting again on, on this whole idea, I've seen some interesting figures, applications for 120 spots in a medical school, you will get maybe 3,000 people applying, yeah. of whom you might interview 300, and then you'll offer the spots to 120 or something similar to that. You are selecting effectively for what, in conventional terms are regarded as the brightest, the most able, the most ambitious. But what you also get in that mindset is 
this ambition, this desire to yes. to progress. You know, I want to be a cardiologist in Fitzroy. I want to be a yes. neurosurgeon in the leafy suburbs. I'm not interested in rural general practice. I'm not interested yes. in that kind of thing. How do we address that? It, it is extremely difficult. As I, as I said, the uh, structures of privilege protect themselves. They, they reconstruct themselves when you try to deconstruct them. And it's, it's an on, ongoing fight and a battle. And it's partly, of course, because we don't have terrific ways of measuring these things. And, you know, for example, it's any um, selection technique that you try to use in medicine. The selection techniques are reasonably good at the two ends. You know, they can, they can tell the ones who are just not, not going to be right. But it, it, trying to believe that we have any incremental way of selecting that's valid is, uh, it, it's just not, just not the case. So, so a lot of the, the techniques that are used in medical selection are, are really just numbers reduction techniques. And that's, a, but the problem is we purport that they are otherwise. In the Netherlands, some years ago, there was a, a ballot-based system. So students had to meet certain levels of achievement. But if they were beyond that level of achievement, they, could, they went into a ballot and it was just a ballot. And that's how, how you selected for medical school. And in fact, that process did improve um, equity of access quite, quite substantially. Uh, and the doctors were no worse. We were no, were no better, no worse. They were really just the same in terms of their general capability. That system was dismantled in, in the Netherlands, but it wasn't dismantled because it didn't work. It was dismantled because the forces of privilege didn't like it. So it, it is, it's, a, it's a very difficult set of tasks, but just because something's difficult, I don't think that means we have to give up on it. And, you know, I think we do. There are some ways through which we can try to redress the balance. And some of these ideas we have about, about going out to the communities that we ultimately want to serve and finding the people there who have the capabilities and the motivations that we're looking for and doing virtuous discrimination, as it were, to, uh, to redress the balance that, uh, that mitigates against or militates against people from those backgrounds being able to access uh, medical programs and, and become doctors for their communities. We're determined to get that right. But it will be a struggle every day, and there will be regard actions from the forces of privilege, I'm sure, and we'll have to keep have to keep responding to those. But I think it is very easy, and particularly, I think, medicos often do have an intolerance of uncertainty and a need for everything to be crystal clear and a very clear plan ahead. One of the things I've learned over the years in interprofessional education is really, really difficult to sustain over time. The, your car's going forward and the wheels keep falling off. And you can either just sit there and say, oh, the wheels have fallen off, let's give up. Or you can stick them back on and try a different method. And I think that kind of perseverance is really important when you're trying to make change, to make, to make a difference in the world. You're in a unique position as dean of the med school to influence people who are going to be very keen to please you because of your position, particularly the, the, the medical students, regardless of how you select them. And perhaps one way to is to craft the ideas of success around service, around the kind of things that you that you described yeah. early in your career. How do you think we can do that? I think we need to make that absolutely explicit in the, for want of a better word, branding of the institution. Don't like the word branding; it derives from commerce and and, um, and advertising, but. You know, the, the, the visible ethos is probably a better, better way to put it. You know, I would like the reputation of my institution to be 
that it tries to meet the needs of those in the community who most need those need those needs met. And uh, you know, I guess by saying the kinds of things I'm saying today publicly, uh, that is part of that of that process. You know, I think there are other institutions in Victoria that that can provide the super specialists for the metropolitan area. I don't think that's our job. Some of our students, some of our students who come from rural backgrounds, may may be brilliant neurosurgeons and it make a sense for them to be located in, in a state capital or at least in a, in a large regional area, regional capital. But that's not our purpose. Uh, our purpose is to provide the carers that people need, that people, that the professionals that people need in their communities to to optimise their health. Uh, and that's not just in a curative way, of course, it's also in a preventative and public health way as well. Uh, so that dimension, I think, is also very important. And and one that a lot of people who are coming into or thinking about medicine traditionally don't see at all. I mean, my PhD was essentially was in public health. And so my experience over the years is that most medical students, or perhaps now with COVID they're starting to, but, uh, but until now, most, most medical students really don't uh, see a public health perspective at all. That's in fact true of of most of the clinical health professions, most physiotherapists, most dietitians, don't see the, the public health perspectives of, of what they're doing. They see individual therapeutic care uh, as opposed to any sort of preventive orientation. And I think that's, that's also a problem. That's something else we need to change because we know that's the most effective way to improve human health, which is, after all, what we're about. I always try very hard to, to be talking about optimising health rather than optimising health care, because health care is a very small bit of, of how we bring about an improvement in human health and well-being. Okay, I want to pivot slightly now and talk a little bit about research, because research is being seen as increasingly an important part of the medical curriculum in most medical schools, mine, yours, many others in and around Victoria. How do you think this works? How do you think that this plays out in practice? Do you think it makes people better clinicians, or do you think that it somehow has become a distraction? It's a really, that's a really important area to think about. I think research literacy, in other words, understanding what research is, how it's done, how we base our um, approaches to both to therapeutics, but also to prevention, how, how we create the evidence on which our practice is based, that's a critical part of any professional's capability. If you're not research literate, you can't actually fulfill your professional obligation to your patients and clients and the communities that you serve because you don't know good evidence from not so good evidence and you can't investigate evidence to see if it's actually sound or if it's actually serving uh, the interests of a third party as, as often it will be. So there's a professional responsibility, I think, for health professionals to be research literate. Now, whether they all actually have to be researchers in order to gain that, that research literacy, I think, is a very different question. I think some of the programs that you see in medical courses where people are asked to think about a problem and then devise a research process to, to answer a problem, I think that's a really useful exercise in gaining research literacy starts to make you think like a researcher. And I actually remember the process of learning about research myself very well, because, of course, when I was at medical school, we learned nothing about research, yet we were, we were supposed to be able to decode the evidence for our practice. 
But I got involved in research for the first time when I was in HIV practice because, of course, HIV treatment was uh, – we, we were right at the forefront. We were using experimental treatments uh, because there was no good treatment at that time. And so I was involved in clinical trials a lot from the practice point of view at that point and even a little bit of bench work. And I do remember my own process of, of understanding how evidence is created and when it's, when it's evidence on which you can rely on or evidence that you can transfer to your own situation. And what kind of practice in the process is reasonable. But should we require every single health professional to be a first-class researcher in order to be a good health professional? No, I think that goes, that goes far too far. Some of us will be academic clinicians. Some of us will be scholarly clinicians to a greater extent, and we will be involved more in the production of new understanding and new insights. Others of us are better suited to applying the evidence that's been derived elsewhere to the human practice of healthcare. And I think the ones who have that capability and are not brilliant researchers make very good doctors, so or nurses or physiotherapists. Um, so uh, I think we have to be careful about it. But I, I can I, I certainly see the purpose of it, and I think having more research literacy than I would have had after my six-year undergraduate course is very important. I hear you, and I and I resonate with all that you have said. One of the concerns I have, though, is that universities often don't see it that way. They see this as in the university derby in terms of research outputs and grants and publications and so on. So the young people that we have in our charge and who look to us for leadership are subject to this constantly. If you've got a one or two publications by the time you qualify, you are well ahead of the pack in terms of getting this job, that job, or the other job, or this reward or that reward, and we'll make sure that you get employed at our institution because you will be seen as being of value, churning out mm. the things that matter to us, our KPIs. How do you see that? Um, I think I think that's very problematic, and it, it flows from this belief that that competition is the only way to do anything. I, I wrote a paper that was published in Medical Teacher a year or so ago that was called Why We Would Be Better Off Without Grants and Awards in Health Professional Education. And it, it picked up on this idea that competition is always the right way to bring anything about. It just isn't. If you're, uh, if you're competing with another widget manufacturer, that's, that's as may be. But we're not talking about commodities. We're talking about healthcare and education that have none of the characteristics of commodities. And yet, the, the only way to see any enterprise these days is through that lens of, of competition and, and, um, and commerce, really. This, this is just another facet of it. You know, I, I would much rather that our health services were finding the graduates who had the capabilities that they required for their practice, especially their human capabilities, which is, after all, what doctors do. Than, uh, than selecting on the basis of publications that people are achieving, not because they're intellectually curious, not because they actually want to solve a problem for the world, but because they want to get some, some ink in their CV. The very worst of all possible reasons to do research. I want to move then to the other area that's becoming problematic or has become problematic, and that is the acquisition of clinical skills. And of course, we know that in Australia, like everywhere else in the world, you're, as soon as you walk into the door, you're sent off for a scan or an x-ray or something else. And those clinical skills that we, you and I were taught as fledgling doctors seem not to be quite so prominent. 
Mm. As dean, how are you going to how are you going to address that one? I absolutely agree with you that it's a serious problem. I think when we think about clinical skills, though, we probably overestimate the importance of physical examination-based skills and procedural skills vis-à-vis human capabilities. If you, if you actually look at what doctors do day-to-day, if you study their practice, most of what they do most of the time is interpersonal interaction. And most of their diagnostic process is driven by interpersonal interaction. There's a number of studies that show that most diagnoses are made on the history. Physical examination adds a little bit on top of that. Less and less, to be honest, because we know how unreliable most physical signs actually are. And then investigation pinches the last little bit on the end of that. But interpersonal interaction is how we diagnose. Interpersonal interaction is also how we bring about therapeutic activity because we prescribe but patients don't take <laughs> unless we have interacted with them on a human level and, and partnered with them on the solution, on our impressions of what the problem is, our advice about, about what the solutions might be, and then there's a discussion. There's a discussion about what, what's important to them, what's acceptable to them, what they'll do. And if we don't have those human capabilities to do that, those elements effectively, we cannot be good doctors. The other thing that I've been very interested in the last few years are the values that underpin those behaviours. So we've all done a lot of work in communication training using simulated simulated patients and, and, and what have you, and we can train, in the worst sense of the word train, we can train our medical students to exhibit in the testing situation. We are less good at doing a thing is being about the values formation that sits behind those behaviours so that those good behaviours are sustained over time and they're sustained in the circum- in hard circumstances. There was a lot of concern, and has been for a few years now, about uh, health professionals' mental health, about burnout and even suicide among junior doctors, and there was a sort of epidemic of suicide a couple of years ago. And it's interesting, one of the initial knee-jerk reactions to that problem is to say, we, you need to, from the student's point, you need to stress us less because we're horribly stressed. And on one level, I absolutely agree with that because I think where there is unnecessary stress, so where there's overwork, where there's bullying, where there are assessment systems that are inherently unfair, absolutely we need to change those. That's, that's unconscionable. We can't keep doing that. But even if we could fix all of that tomorrow, even if I waved the magic wand and all of that was gone, we would still be training people for an inherently highly stressful occupation. We see people on the worst days of their lives, when the most most terrible things are happening to them, when they are the most stressed. And so we, we need to train our health professional graduates to have, well, we, we need to support them to develop personal resilience. And I think that personal resilience is also based on a value set that underpins it and a, and a, a sense of purpose in the world a sense that you are actually making a difference. Um, and so we've been, we've been doing quite a bit of scholarly work on this at Griffith. There's another set of ideas that haven't come into, into medical education very much, very surprisingly to me. Now, we talk all the time about mental health and anxiety among health professional students and health professional practitioners. What we haven't picked up on is that the main therapeutic approach to anxiety for the last 50 years have been staged exposure. 
what do we do to someone who's frightened of spiders? We start off with a spider, a picture of a spider in the corner of the room, and then we gradually get them more accustomed to the presence of a spider until they can actually have one on their hand. We haven't translated that very sound psychology into the education of health professionals. How do we bring about resilience to emotional stress? We apply a little bit of graded emotional stress carefully and in a very supportive way so that people can develop their resistances. It's exactly analogous to the, to the spider phobia. So I think there are, there are a few things there that feed into how we should be educating our health professional students better. Gary Rogers, first of all, welcome to Victoria. And secondly, I think your students are extraordinarily privileged to have you uh, in that leadership position. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>